0: Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Bob Bradley, the new coach and sporting director of Toronto FC. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including on-site coverage of every U.S. Men's National Team World Cup qualifier. That's grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. In segment one today, we've got Chris Whittingham and I breaking down the news in the soccer world. We'll have Bob Bradley in segment two, but let's bring in Whitty now. How are you?
1: Doing all right. Enjoyed another soccer weekend and ready for a trio, a triple header of U.S. Men's National Team World Cup qualifiers, got Landon Donovan ready to come back and break it all down in our LWW podcast. Fired up here.
0: I am too. And it's been a little while since the, the last round of qualifiers. So to get Landon back in with us for those uh, instant reaction pods, which have been a lot of fun, uh, I'm really looking forward to later this week. Obviously, Thursday night is Uh, the U.S. in Columbus, Ohio, hosting El Salvador, first of three games. But let's talk about the U.S. men's national team roster that came out kind of later than usual, a bit on Friday
1: late afternoon. Any surprises for you? Any thoughts? Not particularly. I mean, to me, kind of the, the theme here is that I think Greg Berhalter is solidifying what he views kind of his best squad to be. And I'm kind of curious if there's going to be maneuverability for new players to really step into that picture. Interesting to me that after Daryl DK gets a big money move to West Bromwich Albion, still not in contention. Interesting to me that after, I mean, I, I have like player alerts for all the U.S. men's national team players abroad. Joe Scally starts every week for Borussia Mönchengladbach and has not gotten a look-in with Greg Berhalter in a meaningful way in terms of playing. So it seems as though Greg Berhalter is treating this for the moment like a club team, like I have my guys, this is how I want to play, this is who fills the roles within a squad, and I'm not really going to maneuver too much from that. So in terms of introductions. Uh, It's interesting that you know Jordan Morris is back in. He seems to be a player that Greg Berhalter really values. Also interesting that after Tim Weah missed such a large amount of time, good that he came on as a sub in midweek, started at the weekend for Lille, you would imagine that he'll probably play... Well, I don't know. I guess like now you have a real thing where Polisic is healthy, Weah is healthy, and Aronson is healthy, and you've got three wingers for two spots. Uh, So I guess that's an interesting competition for places. Um, But it's interesting now that I don't think that the the makeup of this squad is going to change very much, either in this window or in March. Greg Berhalter is going to go to the finish line. It would appear as though with this group of guys.
0: I think you're right there. A couple of things that stood out to me. And by the way, Brendan Aronson's new name is subject of $27 million (laughs) bid from Leeds. Brendan Aronson. Take that. Um Pretty
1: impressive, by the way,
0: I would say. And it seems like Leeds uh, want to go
1: and go again.
0: Yeah. So fascinating to follow with that storyline. 28 players called in, more than usual. And Greg Berhalter in his press conference made it clear that, look, he's got Omicron concerns, and that makes sense to me that um, we might lose some guys here um, from this roster. Still, 13 players from MLS which is out of season and and, you know these guys haven't played in games I mean some of them played in that U.S. friendly last month against Bosnia and Herzegovina but uh, they've been in a camp in Phoenix with Greg Berhalter and his staff it's a a bigger number than I expected 13 MLS players and you're gonna have the the usual people out there saying, oh, you know, MLS, he's you know too tied to MLS. There's a quota. (laughs) I don't necessarily think there's a quota uh, for Greg Berhalter of MLS players to pick, but it does seem like a, a lot of players have been picked that are MLS players who've been with him in this camp. Did I expect Brooks Lennon to be part of this group? I did not. I don't expect him to be a significant, you know, impact player on the field in these games. But... Uh, That was interesting. We are seeing Jordan Morris get uh, the call. Uh, Jesus Ferreira is a really interesting one to me because of not only that he keeps getting picked, and he's basically the the backup center forward, unless maybe Christian Pulisic is. It might be Josie Zardes, honestly. Maybe, yeah. Um, But the idea that Jesus Ferreira is getting picked and not Daryl DK or Jordan Pifak is interesting mm-hmm. um, to me and, and if I have a, a moment to ask Burhalter a question at one of these press conferences maybe we'll see I, I, like it's, it's interesting to me I'd like to hear more about what he thinks about Jesus Ferreira because clearly he rates him mm-hmm. um, and he is a promising player I just don't know if I would say he's done so much to deserve this at this point um, but, you know, four goalkeepers called in was mildly interesting. Uh, Gabriel Slonina, uh, the 17-year-old uh, from the Chicago Fire, being one of them, and obviously a great future. And clearly, if he's being called in, Burhalter must really like him. Potentially, you were saying there's uh, – uh, a, a choice for Slanina at some point to make?
1: Yeah, so he he is of Polish descent. Uh, they call him Gaga in, in, in Chicago. Uh, so, I mean, you'd imagine you'd have to put on some bit of recruiting, uh, you know, heading, heading into that decision for him. But he's been a U.S. youth international the whole way. Um, so I, I would imagine he'll choose the U.S., but... I mean, also, you know, that pathway for the moment would appear to be blocked uh, for for him to become a starter anytime soon with Zach Zach Steffen and Matt Turner. But I mean, impressive what he's done. He's the subject of offers as well from European clubs already, I would presume because of a European passport. But yeah, I mean, interesting that, you know, he goes into the December camp, the January camp, and now is called into the full national team just as Cover for cover, and also to probably just soak in the experience of being in the U.S. national team. I I kind of want to address the MLS point that you made though. Um, I I find it really interesting, and we talked about this with Gareth Southgate during the Euros. I think I've referenced this before. Is the notion that guys in the squad play roles, and you're not just picking the most talented players? I find that really interesting when it comes to international teams, because I think fans view it as. Pick the, pick the best players and then throw all of the best players out on the field at the same time and not think about how it fits into a bigger picture. So I don't want to necessarily defend Greg Berhalter because like I do think that there are players based in Europe or you know different players that are available in his pool that he should be picking over guys like Sebastian Legette, who we've seen in this cycle, I don't think perform to a high enough level. But... I also understand that Greg Berhalter views the squad as, all right, I have this, you know, Jesus Ferrer is kind of a different look as a second forward and as a guy who plays the center forward position differently than other players, I kind of want that available plus positional versatility as a substitute. So I understand what his thinking is in terms of you kind of need role players after you have, you know, your top, I would say, 11 or 12 players. I, I I did a depth chart of the U.S. men's national team. 10 of the 11 players you'd slot in to be starters are based in Europe right now. So it's not like this mm-hmm. team is lacking for European-based players, but I think Greg Berhalter is saying, well, these other guys that I'm picking as role guys, MLS-based guys, can do a job where it's, if I need this thing in a game, I can turn to him as opposed to, let's say, Conrad De La Fuente, who's playing regularly at Marseille. Maybe he's not really a role player. He's someone that you might build an attack around, and right now, the U.S. probably has an abundance of guys you build the tax around. So it, that might not be someone who, can you come and play this role for me? I don't think that's how Greg Berhalter probably views a player like Conrad.
0: So do you, I using the number on your depth chart there, do you not think that Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman, both MLS players, are the starting center backs?
1: So I think that Chris Richards deserves a shout. So... Uh, he's playing so regularly for Hoffenheim. I, I put him ahead of Walker Zimmerman on mine. I had a pairing of Richards and and, and and Robinson. Understand that Zimmerman has played really well recently and will probably play in this window. All three of them will probably play in this window, um, but I think Chris Richards, because of what we talked about, which is European guys are playing right now. He played at a high level at, at this weekend in a game against Dortmund. He actually nearly scored a goal. He had a header come off the crossbar in their game against Borussia Dortmund, so he's playing, and you know in a game in which he's you know all the headlines were drawn to ricardo pepe's debut for augsburg it was actually chris richards who stole the show with how well he played for hoffenheim so i i have him as a starter ahead of zimmerman i have him playing with miles robinson at the back
0: interesting uh john brooks not on the the roster and what burr alter said in the press conference was this is purely a form-related decision. Now, what I would say that Greg Berhalter is not saying and kind of can't say publicly, my feeling is that uh, this is a situation which happens occasionally where if you don't start Brooks, you don't call him in. Hmm. That's that's my feeling. There's been players like that over the years. I think Jermaine Jones was like that of players who, if you're not gonna start them, you might not wanna call them in. Um, and I know that there's sort of an implication that, which is probably true, that grousing is what happens uh, if said player is is not starting and he's on the bench. I, I think, to some extent, Jeff Cameron was like that uh, under Bruce Arena, uh, where, actually, and I should I should be very clear about this, I actually think Bruce Arena should have started Jeff Cameron and didn't, including in some very decisive games in qualifying in 2017. But I also think that once he was not a starter, um, that was a tough situation inside that team. Uh, and, and, and Cameron did make it difficult. I know he's not a huge fan of Bruce Arena s- still. But <laughs> I, I do think that's kind of a situation that we could be seeing here with Brooks. And, and, you know, maybe he hasn't been written off. Certainly Greg Berhalter's not saying that he has, but I, I, it is fascinating that yeah. a player who, by the way, I, I know Wolfsburg is not, is in a rough stretch here, but I wouldn't say that Brooks has been terrible. Uh, and he's starting basically every game for him. Um, and there aren't too many U.S. players in that situation. So that's that's an interesting storyline.
1: Well, he hasn't played for the U.S. for a long time, and I think that this is a situation where, again, you treat the national team like a club team, and you're not judging Brooks on what he's doing for Wolfsburg, because he's played well in Germany even when he has not been favored by U.S. men's national team managers. It's about what does he do for the national team. And he just has had too many performances, in my opinion, where he hasn't done enough to show that he is up for national team games and competitive CONCACAF qualifiers. I actually think that like, if you get beyond CONCACAF and get into the World Cup, he might be a player that's more valuable in a World Cup than he is in qualifying because of the nature of the game, because of the nature of the opponents. But If you're just judging him on the basis of U.S. men's national team performances in your most important games, I don't think he's a player that you'd pick. And so... Like I think it's a totally defensible decision, not based off form for club, but form for country. And so he hasn't played. He played forty-five minutes away in Honduras, and I think was among uh, the halftime substitutes because he only he only played forty-five minutes in that game. And then you know was at fault for the Canada goal in uh, in in the in the second qualifier. There was a home draw against Canada. So look, I just don't think his performance has been good enough. The one thing that you would say is that the fourth center back that they've taken is Mark McKenzie who has also not delivered in big US men's national team games. I'm thinking, of course, of the Nations League final, all the off field stuff notwithstanding. He just wasn't good in that game. And so the fact that you'd pick him over Brooks for me suggests probably that there might it might not just it might just be purely about form. It might be the bigger things that you're talking about.
0: It's also worth pointing out that last time that Brooks played and didn't play well for the US and those three qualifiers, um I guess that was the first round, right, in, mm-hmm. in September. Same three opponents in this window, um, even though Afonso Davies won't be around for Canada. Uh, I did read a column about the U.S. deciding to put home games in Columbus and especially Minnesota in February. On February 2nd, they're going to go to Minnesota. And this was a choice, obviously. U.S. soccer could have put these games in – Florida, Jacksonville, Orlando. I know they put uh, a Mar- the March home game in Orlando recently, but um doesn't make sense to me. It just doesn't. I think the U.S. is in a position where technically they're the better team quite by a quite a significant margin matched up against El Salvador or Honduras. And you want good conditions, good weather conditions, good field conditions, to maximize that advantage. And if you put up games in winter, hazardous winter weather potentially by choice outdoors, um, you decrease the chances, you reduce the margin for air for your own team, I believe. And so I don't think the, the travel distance advantage that you gain by having these games in Columbus In Minneapolis, with a game in Hamilton, Ontario, in between, is that significant uh, and that different, really, from having these games in Florida? The US flies these really nice charter planes everywhere, and this is by far the least amount of travel in any three game window of World Cup qualifying. So I, I, I just don't get it. US may well still get six points at home from these games. It's really important that they do but why reduce your margin for error
1: yeah it, it's clear that these games or these decisions are oriented around the canada game and it's kind of like when the us decides whenever they're away at azteca they haven't done it in this cycle i think because the, the azteca match i think is the first game of a cycle but it's, you know in in cycles past they have always decided to play in Denver or some area at high altitude before they go to Azteca so that their bodies can get used to the altitude, and you're not that that's one less thing you have to adjust to. I think it's the same thing here where it's all right when we go away to Canada, we're not going to have to adjust to playing. In cold weather because we've been playing in cold weather this game and we're going to stay this is going to be a mode that we're in we're also not changing temperatures so like like i would imagine this is purely based off where the canada game was located how cold it was going to be what kind of surface is it on i i agree with you i think that in some ways that's probably placing too much importance on the canada game because realistically if we're looking at this window if you beat el salvador at home and you beat honduras at home you're pretty much home and dry in terms of qualifying for the World Cup, at the very least making the playoff. You're in the playoff if you win those two home games. So... I think it's probably an overemphasis on the Canada game, and it might be a reaction to you know previous a, a previous trip to Canada in the Nations League. It might be a, a reaction to how the game in September went, was we have to take Canada seriously, and this like so we're gonna build the strategy around it while also you know building a strategy on beating El Salvador at home. So I understand kind of what logistically Greg Berhalter was probably thinking, but I agree. I think that your most important games in this window are at home and you should be played and those should be played in the most ideal conditions possible. I mean I'm based in South Florida, I'm biased. I think one of those games should be in Miami. You back Miami to have enough US soccer supporters to outnumber El Salvador supporters or Honduras supporters. It is ideal. I cannot tell you how nice it is to play a game of football right now in South Florida. I did so today. It is perfect. So uh, that, that, for me, is the kind of conditions that Greg Berhalter should be seeking uh, more than necessarily worrying about what's going on with the Canada game. But I think it's pretty clearly of importance, and he's telling you with those decisions.
0: Yeah, one other thing I did report on Saturday, not earth-shattering news, but still interesting, I think, that had Canada gone ahead as they originally intended and put this game in Vancouver against the U.S., that the U.S. had contracts ready to stage their two home qualifiers in San Jose, California and Portland, Oregon. And only when John Herdman, the Canada coach, threw a fit and said, no, we're playing our home game against the U.S. in Hamilton, Ontario, because they want to cut down on their own travel, because they're coming from Honduras to that game, did Canada put the game in Hamilton and cause the U.S. to change and put its games in Minnesota and Ohio. So kind of interesting there, only... partly because the U.S. was willing to put games on the West Coast, which they haven't always been willing to do during qualifying, and play on artificial turf in Portland. And if they're willing to play on artificial turf in Portland, why not Atlanta?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, well, and any dome really in the country that it opens up a hole, you can play in Indianapolis in a dome for all you care, like you can play in a bunch of places that are indoors. So yeah, I mean, Uh, for me even minneapolis by the way (laughs) right exactly yeah you can play minneapolis in their stadium yeah and you can go to a place you you've probably never been to before and take u.s u.s soccer somewhere else look i i I understand kind of the thinking here but there's a reason why the ml why mls does not play a winter schedule why they don't want to have you know games in minnesota in early february and u.s soccer just leaned right into it We'll, we'll see how it goes
0: So a couple more things I want to talk about before we get to Bob Bradley. Africa Cup of Nations is now in the elimination rounds. Round of 16 going on. Best part of the tournament. Wasn't a lot of jeopardy, actually, in the group stage, even though Algeria and Ghana did go out. Nigeria goes out in the round of 16 on Sunday to Tunisia, or as you said earlier when I spoke to you, Tunisia in a very <laughs> British way, which I love. It's not, te- it's not incorrect. It's just very British, fancy lad. Um, and Tunisia is one of those teams that, like, they're in the final round of World Cup qualifying and may well make the World Cup out of Africa, but they're unlike some other, they're unlike other sort of top, level African teams they don't have any like individual superstars there's no Mohamed Salah or Sadio Mane or or players of that stature that you see in some of these top African teams but Tunisia is a good team and they pull the upset Nigeria despite winning all three of their games including against Egypt in the group stage is out and that's an interesting one, and, and, and I'm excited to see the rest of these AFCON games, especially now that they're in the elimination round.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've had a couple of blue bloods in Africa go down in these early stages. I would say Algeria is the one that is most absolutely stunning, given that they entered the tournament with a 34-match unbeaten run and leave it as group stage exiters in a 24 team tournament that where 16 teams make the knockout round i mean it was as stunning they were probably the favorites to win it all uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you have Algeria go down, you have Nigeria go down. Unfortunately, uh, from a U.S. point of view, probably the, the story so far of the tournament is Sierra Leone. What a story they would have been. They would have gone through into the knockout round with the draw, but Kai Kamara missed a penalty uh, late in the game against Equatorial Guinea on the final stage, on the final day of the group stage. So uh, that was unfortunate. There, I, I saw there was, you know, pictures of, you know, fans outside his house, which, you know, considering what a national hero he is, that was disappointing to see but you know Kai Kamara's legacy is going to be sealed in Sierra Leone for a long time regardless of what happened here but yeah I mean you have you know a game go to penalties today between Burkina Faso and Gabon Um, you're looking ahead you have you know Morocco is probably a team that's really interesting uh, really interesting to look at going forward Senegal Ivory Coast are kind of the teams you associate with having pedigree in this tournament so I think this is as wide open of an international tournament as you're going to get you're not Going to see, all right, you know, one team is going to run away with it, even though Senegal have stars, Egypt has Mo Salah, Salah, you know, Cameroon is a team that, you know, is always a strong international side. You have no idea who's going to win AFCON. You have no idea who's going to win any single one of these games. And you have no idea how these games are going to go. So from a Jeopardy! standpoint, I'm not sure inter- international tournaments get better.
0: Yeah, a couple of things I would point out. Ivory Coast, Egypt is a great round of 16 game. That's going to be on Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern. And on Monday, you've got the host Cameroon against Comoros. And you got to feel for the folks from Comoros, 12 positives when it came to COVID tests. And they've already announced that they're going to have a, an outfield player starting in goal <laughs> in this game. So, could be an interesting one. I love the AFCON.
1: It's been a lot of fun so far, uh, and there's quite a few games left. Yeah, I mean, like, like we talked about, jeopardy all over the place. So, uh, you know, the, the Monday games are Guinea Gambia and Cameroon Comoros. Uh, unfortunately, it feels like the Comoros run uh, comes to an end here in their game against Cameroon.
0: Premier League, Interesting weekend in the sense that Liverpool actually makes up two points on Manchester City. Man City gets uh, a late tie at Southampton, and and Pep Guardiola gave a hilarious post-game interview in which he, sort of (laughs) (laughs) semi-belligerently being asked about the performance, said it was one of the best performances of the season, and then goes... By far,
1: <laughs> it's, it's a
0: great clip. <laughs> He's so weird sometimes, <laughs> in a way that I love. <laughs> but uh, Man City gets only one point out of that game. Liverpool wins at Crystal Palace without its Afcon players. So clearly, losing Mane and Salah for Afcon has not been a huge issue for Liverpool at this point, point. and they're not totally out of it yet.
1: No, I and and you know, I imagine you know unfortunately for for you know Jurgen Klopp you might be the world's biggest Cape Verde and Ivory Coast fans to get your players back but next weekend is FA Cup they've got 10 days until their next Premier League match which i believe is against Leicester and now you look at you know what's left you know unfortunately it's a really high bar like you probably have to come pretty close to winning out from here which is you know a standard that both Liverpool and Man City achieved in the same season where they basically went from February to the end of the season without ever losing a game but that's kind of the standard now for Liverpool but if you win your game in hand you're 6 points behind if you beat Manchester City at the Etihad you're 3 points behind all of a sudden you have a title race on so that's kind of the hope right now for Liverpool they you know in some ways we talked about a lot about the players that they lost due to Afcon but they're going against Crystal Palace who were probably the team most affected by the African Cup of Nations so you know it's one of those things where they probably got lucky with the fixture that they drew during this period because it, you're kind of on a level playing field. That being said, Patrick Vieira's side still give a decent account of themselves. And now Liverpool are kind of in with a shout. And Manchester City, I think in a couple of games here, even look at the Chelsea match where it's kind of a shortage of chances created. And now you're seeing a, you know a, a, a Man City team where, okay, maybe it's not perfect what they're putting out week in and week out.
0: Also, Chelsea 2, Spurs nil... Um, I don't think Chelsea can win the title, but this was still a pretty big win for them against a Spurs team that had been getting good results under Antonio Conte.
1: Yeah, so Chelsea have absolutely owned Tottenham this season, regardless of manager. They played twice in the league. They played twice in the Carabao Cup. Chelsea have won all four meetings and outscored Tottenham 8-0. And when you look at the two meetings in the Carabao Cup and this meeting today in the Premier League, you have three meetings over the course of two weeks where Tottenham barely laid a glove on them. The only time that they really came that close to scoring was a Harry Kane goal that was disallowed for a foul in the buildup. But Chelsea just absolutely controlled these games. And in some ways, it kind of makes you wonder like what the answers are to Antonio Conte's system. And I guess one of them might be not just moving to a back three because you know it, it's it, it's the thing that you do to match up tactically with what his system is, but playing it all the time. And I think because Chelsea are in this system all the time, they can kind of figure out how to match Tottenham numerically in key positions in the field and so they just completely control everything that they're doing because they always have a player in every position where Tottenham is used to playing through so Tottenham are a team that you look Antonio Conte is going to weave some magic against the bottom 14 teams if you want to call them that they're going to get good results but I think they still clearly have some levels to climb in terms of the caliber performance that they're getting from the players that are on the field and maybe even bringing some new players in as well to kind of raise their level but Chelsea what a goal from Hakim Ziyech and this one for the first and then they get the second just to kind of lock up the tie and Tottenham or never really came that close to you know really making this interesting so uh, Chelsea again kind of reestablishing. All right maybe we don't have Lukaku firing right now but we can still win games of football and I, I thought they were really good today just in controlling Tottenham from start to finish.
0: I thought they dominated him. And so, uh, you know, when I was watching and, and Kane did get the disallowed goal, I was like, oh, man, like, that's kind of ridiculous just because Chelsea was totally controlling the game then and afterward, too. Um, I like the fact that you pronounce Hakim Ziyech's name correctly. Mm. A lot of announcers don't, and you are a game announcer. I, have you ever seen, if you do a search on Twitter, how do you pronounce Hakim Ziyech? Like, it comes up and it's Hakim Ziyech in the Netherlands when he was with Ajax being asked this question and saying Hakim Ziyech uh, and yet so many people say Ziyech
1: why is well, this so I think there was like a like a subsequent follow I think Arlo White has said that like they were told by either the club or somebody close to Ziyech or maybe even Ziyech himself that it's ZX. So it's one of those things where there's just kind of a lack of clarity here. Um, and and like and like I've I've run into this before where like players just kind of give up on their name being pronounced correctly. So they just like kind of accept the butchered version. Um, so I, I don't actually know. So I, I I tend to lean on the player saying it. I remember when he was signed at Chelsea, I was working on the Chelsea mic Up podcast, and I was like, I'm going to find out how he said so I looked at videos and you get multiple answers it's weird but yeah this is one where I I, like when we when he was at the club and we I was working at the club it was Ziesh so I've kind of stuck with that pronunciation
0: it's a good point you make Ernie Stewart who's now with U.S. soccer former player was on the cover of Sports Illustrated during the 1994 World Cup when he scored what ended up being the game-winning goal against Colombia, and his name was on the cover of the magazine E-R-N-I-E and only years later did it turn out that his name is actually spelled E A R N I E, but Ernie was too polite to ever correct anybody, <laughs> and, and so for years, which says yeah how polite Ernie Stewart is. He's a very polite guy, but kind of crazy now. If you look at that Sports Illustrated cover, his name is not spelled correctly now.
1: Yeah, and it's it's one of the ways in which probably back then like. It, it's weird i guess like the way that soccer has grown in popularity here i would say it's probably risen the level of the kind of international exposure that a lot of them like american sports are very insulated because they're you know this is really the only place where they're popular basketball is the one that's kind of grown the most abroad but in in some ways we kind of weren't really used to internationalizing things so if you see the name ernie you just spell it ernie And so, like, it's one of those things where probably no one even bothered to check or was really that concerned. I I don't know. It was probably just a different mentality before kind of the globalization of sports coverage in a way.
0: One last thing I want to talk about, and that is in the NWSL, Michelle Kang got a burst of good news, not definitive quite yet, but it certainly looks like it will be before long, that she is going to be... a approved by the NWSL board of governors to take over with the Washington Spirit, the defending champion of the league. There's been this huge ugly public battle between Kang, who's a, a been a minority investor in the team, um with Steve Baldwin, who has been the majority investor and and his, you know, under Baldwin's rule or ownership that club has had all sorts of issues with abuse Uh, we had molly hensley clancy from the washington post who exposed a lot of it on the podcast uh, a while back but it, it seemed like the NWSL leaders sure waited a long time and gave steve baldwin way too much credit and opportunity to hang around and Michelle Kang has been offering $35 million to buy the team. He has not wanted to sell it to her. He was wanting to take a $25 million offer from Todd Boley. And it sounds like sanity has prevailed. I hope that's the case because the, the NWSL needs some sanity right now. Uh, what's your sense of all this?
1: Well, I, I find it interesting that the way in which this was achieved was kind of the real power brokers work not in the dark, but kind of without like putting things out in the public eye. While this has been very public at times, she very clearly came up with this plan of basically buying out the other investors that make up 52% and turning it into ownership of the team. And it was a, a remarkably executed idea that now has the backing of the NWSL. And furthermore, I would probably say that a lot of the issues right now that plague the NWSL are kind of those behind the scenes. What are you doing away from the field? What are you doing day in and day out to improve your processes? And that I think like there's kind of a lesson here in the way that Michelle Kang has gone about, you know, the acquisition of this team. So it, it, it's every day improving the standards, improving processes, How do we believe women? All the things that we've talked about over the course of the last year as it relates to all the stories that have come out about this league, it needs operators like this that know how to, for lack of a better phrase, get shit done. And so I think that she's been a remarkable operator here, deserves to own this team. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really fired up that she's going to probably get the opportunity here if this plan that she's put together is hatched.
0: This was a, a bit of good news, and the players on the Washington Spirit have been very clear publicly they want Michelle Kang, they don't want Steve Baldwin. So it appears that we're heading in that direction. Chris, good talking to you, man. Thanks. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Bob Bradley. Our guest now is Bob Bradley the new head coach and sporting director of Toronto FC. Bob, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. All right, Grant, 2022. Let's get (laughs) going, man. I can't believe it's been two years since we've done one of these. I've lost all track of time during the pandemic, but it's great to have you here now. Um, Your team just made Lorenzo Insignia the highest salaried player in MLS history by a mile, by the way. What are your thoughts on the whole thing?
2: It's exciting. Uh look, first off, uh that discussion started long before I came on board. Uh and and Bill uh took the lead. Um Bill still uh and, and MLSE, the board. There's there's a strong feeling uh about stars, about players that are relevant in the community. Um uh, one of the strongest fan bases uh for TFC over the years has been the Italian community. And uh, Giovinco obviously was a huge part of, of the team's successes, um, in 2016, 17, 18. Uh, and now the possibility for, for Lorenzo, uh, he's, he's a special talent. Uh, he's got quite uh, a personality and immediately the excitement level in the city, uh, was, was incredible, so I think that part speaks for itself
0: How will you go about incorporating a player like insignio when he arrives midseason?
2: I think first is just that we establish football ideas in the way we play uh, that that make us a good team uh, as far as f- how the ball moves uh, when when we lose the ball, what are our ideas defensively how do we react how do we step up. Uh, So there's so many football things that I think uh, I want to establish with teams and that that's uh, building a strong foundation. Uh, You know, when I, when I watched uh, Italy last year in in the Euros, uh, I really felt that Mancini had done a fantastic job with, with the way the team played and there were similarities um, with what they tried to do with, with what I think uh, we were even doing at, at LAFC. And, and so for me, uh, the starting point is establishing ideas. And then, of course, Lorenzo uh, has got some big games coming up. Uh, certainly their, their playoff to get to the World Cup and then the finishing of the season with uh, Napoli. And then when he arrives, it's just uh, uh, making sure that that uh, his that guy's everybody's gonna be excited but but that now they'll see right away what 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 it's like to have that kind of guy his his way in the locker room is really special um, and and I, I've been really fortunate uh, over all the years of coaching that, that when you have some big name guys some big personalities the the tone of, of how you work with them how you speak to them in real ways hold them accountable um, so that when they come into a team, nobody's afraid of them. Everybody's excited. Uh, Everybody uh, looks forward to being on the field with him, create training sessions where his qualities can come through right away. And then at the end, when you have really talented players, uh, your ideas as a team have to be how to get that player into the right positions, get him the ball with options in front of them, of him, get him the ball in ways that now he can be creative where he can make final passes and where he can get in position to score.
0: There was always a sense with Jovinko, who I, I understand is not the same player as Insignia, that Jovinko really wasn't getting called into the Italian national team because partly of the choice he made to come play in North America. Has Insignia gotten any? Sort of assurances from Mancini that he'll still be considered that this is anything to be concerned about with the Italian national team if he comes to MLs
2: uh, you know as much as I do. We all read that that uh, Mancini told them that as long as he's in good form uh, and and continuing to uh, contribute the way he has, there's no issues. Uh, none of us really know the story with Giovinco. Uh you know Seba. In our league, uh, has two qualities. That, well, there's there's three parts. I mean, he's still a clever dribbler. He's a great shooter, and he's great on free kicks. And and, and so, if you have those three skills, your ability to put up real numbers, um, it 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 it's going to pay off. Um, now, in, in the Italian national team at that time, with other options that they had, that's a coaching decision, you know, and and whether that was really based on MLS or not or whether or not they felt they had other players that had some of those qualities and and did more for the team. Yeah, those are the -the behind-the-scenes type discussions that don't usually uh, end up in columns because it's... it's, it's more engaging in some ways to to write that the reason he he wasn't called in is because he was in MLS.
0: We're also seeing reports today that uh, Mario Balotelli is set to be called back in. So if Balotelli's still in the mix, then I would certainly hope Lorenzo Insigne would continue to be in the mix. Um, in terms of salary structure, I mean, like this this is far and away the biggest salary that an MLS team has ever paid a player. Do you think that this is a turning point in the league? Do you think this will change how other teams in the league approach spending on the very high end?
2: Hard to say. Uh, I, I, I'm always a believer that that in every league, uh, different teams have to have different identities. Uh, and, and so, uh, again, there are teams that focus more on the youth. There's teams that have done a really good job of having homegrowns and moving them along. There's teams that are, are more interested in selling at a certain point. Um, but like, like a lot of leagues and, and like even uh, other sports in the U.S., there are going to be teams that really value big names, that value stars, Uh, and, and, you know, Toronto had success, um, in, in, in 2016, 17 and 18 with big name players. Uh, and, and, and again, my early discussions with Bill Manning, before I took the job, he was quite clear that there was a strong feeling that, uh, the board would rather spend money in that way for a big name that really registers than, um, go scouting and take chances on some younger players with the idea that you can develop them and sell them. Um, and, and, and so I, I think it just is always interesting and for me really important that you see different approaches. Uh, I, I, I think that's normal. I, see, I think we see it around the world in every league. And uh, I'm a firm believer that it should be part of MLS.
0: We've seen reports that Toronto is also potentially pursuing other big signings, including names like Andrea Bellotti. Could we see more
2: big signings in the near future for your team? I think it's possible. Like I said uh, a second ago, I I, I think that is the identity of the club. Uh, You know, at the moment, uh, you can't answer uh, for specific guys because – there are different discussions going on in terms of how we uh, rebuild ourselves, uh, what our roster is going to look like. It's a work in progress. And so um, I, I can't speak to any of those different discussions. Um, I just know that that the work to build the team and build the roster is going to be ongoing for the, the next weeks, month, uh, who knows, maybe months. Uh, and, and so it'll be interesting to see how some of those things play out. And and, and the, the idea of how you build a team, how you build a roster, how you connect some some ideas uh, with how you want to play without knowing in every case uh, who's going to be with you. Uh, that, that's a challenge, but, but certainly uh, you have to do those things at the same time. Your team
0: at LAFC over the past four years did some unprecedented things in MLS. Why did you want to leave LAFC and join Toronto? Uh,
2: in the summer of 2017, uh, I, I had an idea for the people at LAFC of what kind of team, uh, I wanted to have what kind of football we wanted to play playing style identity, uh, a way to connect, uh, with the fan base, with the city, uh, and, and, and look, I was excited that they, they thought that that made sense. And and so for four years, uh, that was an experience that all of us enjoyed. Uh, uh, in football, it doesn't always work that that just because you're a good team, just because you're fun to watch, exciting, you, you don't always get everything that that you hope for. Uh, and uh, and and certainly, the last two years uh, with the pandemic and just with some some extenuating factors. Uh, we we weren't as as consistent as we had been. Uh, I thought we did a very good job of of continuing to play in the way we always uh, had had gone about things. We didn't want to throw that out. That's for sure. Um, but I, I think that it's normal that at the end of four years, both sides have a, a moment to reflect uh, and and try to understand: Is everybody still on the same page? Uh, and and again, maybe maybe that from management or from ownership maybe there were some people that that weren't as committed to what we had laid out in 2017 and so in that moment it's 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 fairly easy to just uh say listen it's been a great four years and uh you know you guys got to do what you think is best and i'm always excited for different challenges and so that's how it played out
0: you're the sporting director at toronto in addition to being the head coach so you're in charge of personnel uh, for the first time in your career, why why did you want the sporting director gig? And how does that change your day-to-day job that you're doing?
2: Yeah. I'm not, I didn't have the title before, but I'm not sure that, that the responsibilities end up being that different. Um, you know, this time round, uh, the, the idea of being sporting director also, um, aligns with my, uh, hope that we can connect dots between the first team, the second team, the academy. Uh, that was part of the the idea in LAFC for sure. Um, for for different reasons, I, I don't think we managed to be as successful in connecting all those dots. Um, you know, simple point that uh, in the early years at LAFC, uh, the academy was not. They, 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 they didn't have fields right there. And so they were training in all these different spots. And so it wasn't like on a regular basis, I got to see the Academy kids. Um, I loved in preseason or when we had injuries, the ability to get some of the younger kids into training. And eventually there were some homegrown signings, Tony Leone and Christian Torres and Eric Duenas. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I didn't, um, feel that we were always able to connect those dots in, in all the best ways. Um, and, and I'm hopeful that we can do a better job with that. Uh, the, the potential uh, in those ways in Toronto, the, the potential is incredible. Um, the, the talent in, in the, the greater Toronto area, uh, the diversity of the talent, you know, I, I, I had an awesome experience for a year in love um, and, and, you know, French football with kids from so many different backgrounds, so many different kinds of upbringings, the multiculturalism uh, like that is such an important part of football. And that is absolutely the case in the academy in Toronto. Uh, and, and look, that doesn't even include the kids that are going into other academies uh, in the area and haven't been part of of Toronto's academy. So. I am hopeful that as sporting director, we can really connect those dots, uh, right off the bat, uh, the training ground. I see the Academy kids. They're, they're coming through. Um, it it's, it, it's important that you see them, that, that there's a connection that, uh, they know that you're following them, that you can initiate conversations. You know, I, I, I love, uh, it's something I've done everywhere I've, I've been, you know, um, uh, with young players, and and I've done it with Jaden Nelson and Ralph Preso early on before we started training. I saw them in the gym one day, and, and they're not academy players anymore, but I, I'll always say, do you guys watch football? And they'll, they'll say yes, and then I'll say, all right, you know, when you watch, who's the player or a player that you watch that, not because you like that team or not because uh, – you know, they, they do fan uh, s- certain special things. But who do you watch that you think you have some qualities similar to that player? Uh, and it's a good way to engage a young player to just see, you, are they willing to give you an answer? I've had young guys that, that go on and on and on and say, well, um, and I'm like, come on, man, there's no right or wrong here. Give me a name, right? I did that with Freddie Adu years ago, the first time he came in with the national team. I was pushing and pushing. He wouldn't give me a name. Finally, he said to me, Rubinho. And I said, okay, and I, I had my portable DVD player, and we had played Brazil in Soldier Field uh, not that long before that. Uh, it was a great game. We lost 4-2, and I showed him one or two plays from Rubinho, and I say, okay, Freddie, we, if we can get you to look like that, we're going in a good direction, right? <laughs> so anyway, you know, I, I enjoy the, the give and take with young guys. Uh, Jaden Nelson told me Raheem Sterling. Uh, so I thought, okay, that's fair, you know? if we can help you and again in different moments when we show him video whether we pick raheem sterling or whether we pick uh, uh nabri uh, whether we pick sane it doesn't matter it's just given him some ideas of how uh, certain players that have similar characteristics go about things you know we 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 showed our team a little bit of the way liverpool steps up before one of our recent training sessions and You know, I I was making the point to some of our attackers that, you know, when Salah and Mane and Firmino go after people, they really go after them in a hard way. And you don't see Salah just standing out on the right side doing nothing. And the next day in training, Jaden did it a few times, and that was awesome. So, you know, I I, I enjoy that part of the work. I'm trying to figure out the best way to ask this, but when you're
0: working with young players, do you ever have a concern that you might be intimidating to them?
2: I, I enjoy trying to find a way to connect with guys and then to engage with them. Uh, you know, there's different ways to do that. Uh, you know, I, uh, I had a, a, a situation at Luav early on with uh, Ferlo Mendy and I had asked some of the other coaches uh, about him because he wasn't playing. He was young. He was hard to get to know. And and, and from the other coaches, I didn't get very positive feedback. And and, and so uh, Fairlawn didn't speak any English. And so there was a, a really important friend of mine at, at Louave uh, Michael Brunel. Michael was involved with the academy. Um, you know, he's done some work with coming here as part of the French uh, model course that that different people have uh, taken. Um, and Michael was also doing some video analysis and helping translate a little bit. And so Michael and I sat down with and, and And the first thing I said was, um, do you have any idea what everybody thinks of you? And he shook his head. And, and uh, I said, they don't say the best things. And, and he, he got really angry. And I said, look, man, that's not what I'm saying about you. That's what everybody else is saying about you, right? So we got to figure out if you're a good guy, why others aren't aren't seeing that, right? And so, look, that's not a standard approach. It's not by the book that the first thing you do is tell someone that you've heard Certain things about them, but it's a way that it, that from the beginning you, you you're finding a way to see to look him in the eye to have a real conversation to see has he has he had very many of those up until that point um and, and look i I've always tried with all the players that I've coached you know and and uh, this goes back to college guys uh, and then certainly along the way to try to find the right tone the right way uh, to be encouraging to be supportive but to also find ways to, to be honest and engage them. And, um, and so I think that and, 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 and you know you, you'd find enough players that, that have played for me that would maybe uh, not want to say this right away, but eventually they would admit that whatever they had heard going in, that probably now the day-to-day part was different, because you know the, the way that you engage them and try to push them and make them better, uh, a, a, a lot of guys do appreciate that. You know, they really do. So, uh, yeah, I always try to find the right way. And, and no, I don't think in the end uh, they're intimidated. And Part of that, I think that's also important, Grant, is that if you're going to get on a young guy uh, for certain things, then you have to hold the uh, older players and the experienced guys and the veterans to high standards as well. And, and you know, I did mention earlier that I'd been fortunate. I've coached some some big players. and. You know, I had some pretty good back and forth with guys like Crystal and <laughs> Stoichkov uh, for listeners. <laughs> yeah, Kristo Stoichkov. on, there's only one Risto. And, uh, and 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 so you know, look, that's part of the why we're why we're still friends. You know, if I had been afraid of him, uh, he would have he would have <laughs> spit me out for sure. But you know, we had some really strong moments, good moments, things we can laugh out now laugh about now, and, and, and look, I think that's an important part of the way you work, that you, you're you real, that you your ability to look at people, talk to them, hold them accountable, uh, admit you're wrong, uh, laugh, joke, whatever. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I still try to bring that to every, really, to every player that I work with.
0: Some of the names you mentioned is one of them. Obviously, you coach Mohamed Salah with the Egyptian national team. Ferlan Mendes with Real Madrid now um you know uh carlos vela uh with lafc i others over the years
2: do but you only, remember... only one that won the world cup however do you know who that is um let me think um well, i should know this who uh yuri jorkov jorkov yeah so yeah no look it's it's just always interesting that you you, you get a chance with some of these guys different personalities but but I appreciate that part.
0: Do you ever bring those guys in to talk to your players, or or or, or not? Do you is it sort of left unsaid that your guys understand that you've coached guys like that in the past?
2: Uh, I would bring all of them in if I could, but they're all still successful and busy and doing different <laughs> things. Uh, it, it's still great when you run into guys. Um, eh. You know, when 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 we beat Spain in two thousand nine at the Confederations Cup uh, at, after the game, uh, speaking of our man, Christos Stoichkov, he was there doing, doing media work, and he was in our locker room after the game, man. He was, he was pretty excited for us. And obviously, you know, guys like uh, Demarcus Beasley and Carlos Bocanegra, and he remembered uh, Michael from when he was young. So, you know, the, the, the idea Jesse Marsh was part of... Uh, actually, in 2009, Jesse was not part of the staff. In 2010, he was. Um, but, but, yeah, that's always a, a good part. I wish you could do it more, but uh, no, That, that uh, if it happens, great. But I, I, I do think that, that every now and then, to use an example of what this player was like when he was, when he was young, I mean, Salah was a player from the beginning who was humble, uh, wanted to get better, wanted extra work, wanted to be coached, um, was, was a great teammate. And I, I, again, I, I still hear from him. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and so it just, when, when you see early, what a guy's all about and, and, and you see, uh, the, the values and and the way they treat people, uh, it's, it's always nice that that sometimes you can use that as an example for another player and and say, look how hard he worked. This is, this is the reason that he's where he is nothing to do with me. Just a, a guy that, that was so committed wherever he's been, he just wanted to, Take in information and get better. Uh, and, and it's been fun to watch. Do you think he's the best player in the world now? Uh right now, yes. Um, but look, that 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 question is always, you know, is is always Fraught. interesting. <laughs> ah, come on. I mean, I, I appreciate football. I mean, what a year Benzema had last year. I mean, you know, I mean, there's another player that, you know, along the way, you see him in certain moments. Um, you know, I've seen Real Madrid train many times when they were in the U.S., and to see him continuing to play at the level that he plays um, is is incredible. So, you know, I, I give credit to that uh, Lewandowski. With everything, hasn't hasn't gotten uh, all the recognition that he probably has deserved, and and part of it is just that in all of this, uh, we've all been so fortunate to see. You know Lionel Messi over all these years. For me, he's the best player ever. And so, you know, when you're saying who's the best player, uh, yeah, it, it's who's the best player today or in this game. But if you're just saying who's the best player, sometimes you just say, yeah, well, Messi's the best player. So, <laughs> so it makes it hard.
0: So you're out in California right now with Toronto FC uh, training camp out there. What are the most important things? on your to-do list from your perspective in the next month as you get ready for this season?
2: Uh well, the thing that I always put first on the list is is find the best way to have really good training sessions every day. Uh training sessions that uh engage every player, uh where there's real coaching uh, in in the simplest way where you you create as many uh game actions that fit the the the, the way you want to play. That fit uh, things that will happen on a field to work on reactions and decisions and execution. And so, look, I, I, I love that part the most. Um, and, and I want players that are excited to be coached, who have uh, open minds to to how they can still get better. So, you know, the number one way to make a good team is to try to connect with every guy and make every player better. Um, and, and so that's always the starting point. And then yes, given everything in the next month from top to bottom, there's so many different things going on. Uh, I'm tired of the expression moving parts, uh, but yeah, we got a lot of moving parts. So, uh, it'll be necessary to do a lot of things at the same time, but I won't let any of that get in the way of just what happens every day when we get on the field. Uh, we still spend time then later in the day looking at training, discussing plays, usually put together uh, a little bit of video, even in preseason. Uh, might be 10 minutes. It might be three, four or five plays from training. It might be a couple of plays uh, from other teams that are similar to the situations that occur in training. Uh, and so I, I think all of those ways of working uh, show players, what we're trying to do every day so I, I i'm really into that part toronto was the second worst team points wise
0: in mls last season what's a realistic goal for this season in terms of the standings or the playoffs or whatever you're using
2: yeah first it's just to make a good team to establish real ideas um you know when when a team loses confidence when a team uh has too many players that that have sort of lost their way for one reason or another. Uh, the attempt to to get to the bottom of it, understand who are guys that still really want to be here, who are guys that even if they were good players in the past, have sort of for whatever reason um, decided that it's time to 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 move on or move out. Uh, I, I, when those things get started, sure, there's the the usual goals: win as many games as you can, get in the playoffs, be a team that can. Comp- can compete to to win everything. Um, But you don't get to any of those things without the day-to-day process. And so I I don't get caught up writing uh, the other type of goals down on on a sheet of paper. Um, I think we just focus on the process every day. What
0: kind of role will your son Michael have this season? Will he be in any way a player
2: coach or will it be pure player? Ah, Look, I think anybody who knows Michael, and it's been especially true in his time in in Toronto um, I think he always tried as well with the national team you know he he's a guy who his level of professionalism his level of commitment and I think he's trying to help help guys um, you know the relationship that he has with young players here it, it's easy to see um, it's been that way over the years you know I, I again at different times in the past you um, I've read articles where somebody like Justin Morrow was talking about the role that Michael played. Uh, So I think he'll continue to play an important role. And uh, look, I, I, I've said 10 times in this discussion, this idea of coaching people and trying to still make guys better. So, you know, I'm excited to still try to coach Michael every day. I have coached him in the past, but not in a while. Um, See little things in training, open up his, uh, his mind to things that can still get done at a higher level. Um, one thing I know is that when you create good training sessions every day um, that challenge players physically, mentally, technically, uh, he'll be excited about that. I mean, he still loves to play football. He's still, you know, he, he's a tough one because if a training session is good, um, he'll be the first one to say that was awesome. And if a training session is uh, is no good, he's the first one to speak about that, too. So, you know, he's got strong opinions. But, uh, you know, I think uh, the challenge of, of of continuing to find good ways to push him is something that, uh, just like with every other player, I'm looking forward to.
0: We know how close MLS teams have come, including Toronto, including LAFC, to ending Mexico's 16-year reign over the CONCACAF Champions League. and And I realize that's not something in toronto's near future um but what's it going to take for mls teams to start winning ccl even fairly regularly forget just once
2: yeah i mean look to win it once yes there's teams that were that were right there and so i you know this idea that you know um and 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 look all media do this so you know, I I I know you're the one that says, ah, oh, it's another year, and we still haven't done. You know, MLS still has another. Yeah, it's fair, it's honest. Um, you can't ever deny that. Uh, Toronto had a big chance. Uh, certainly, the second leg uh, in Guadalajara, I thought I thought they had the opportunity to get the the second goal. It goes into penalties, and they lose. Um, in a, in a different format at the end of a wild year, LAFC, uh, you know, over the first 60, 70 minutes against Tigris, I thought we played really well. Um, you know, the <laughs> we, we would never have been in that spot without Carlos. And and as it turns out, when it was 1-0, uh, Mahala got by a guy on the right and caught a ball to Carlos. And Carlos had a big chance to put us up uh, 2-0 and wasn't able to to take advantage. He had really been physically pounded in that game. And by the end of the game, he was tired. Uh, and then late, you know, we gave up a goal on, uh, on a set piece and then a fin- a, a late winner by Giniac. That was really disappointing. You know, I, I, I thought we had, uh, the chance to win. So there's those single moments. What does it take on a bigger scale? Um, Look, there are people that talk about the difference in budgets and all this. I I prefer to just focus on the football part. You need a really good team. You need a team that, especially if the format includes uh, a number of home and aways. We only had the one at the beginning of the year, um, late February and early March, first in Lyon, and then uh, the return match in Bank of California. So we didn't have a series of home and aways like, like Toronto had to get to the final. Um, but if you're going to compete in all those home and aways, you've got to have a team that is is motivated to do that. It's a challenge for every coach because uh, the depth of your roster and how you rotate and balance. and But, but in order to do that, you've got to put a priority that we want to win this thing. Uh, and we've seen a few teams that have clearly done that. Others not so much. Uh, so you need you need good teams. You need you need players that are excited about it. I mean, when we went into 2020, uh, Carlos Vela was so excited about Champions League. And even in a year where you know he had some injuries um, and, and he was away from the team, he wasn't with us uh, in Orlando for MLS's back because his wife uh, was expecting. But at the end of the year, he was refocused and motivated for. Going back to Orlando, and for you know what turned out to be the quarterfinal against Cruz uh, Azul, the semifinal against Club America, and then the final. So you need you need your big players to be really motivated. You need them to play at at a high level, and then you need a good enough team that you can play against good teams and uh, in different kind of conditions and uh, find ways to play good football and win.
0: When you and I did an interview two years ago, you said you thought it was time for MLS to consider promotion relegation and eliminating sort of team-specific geographic areas for signing talent from. Are you still in the same place on those things? And how likely do you think it is for those things to actually happen?
2: Uh, Yes, I'm in the same place. Um, You know, I I appreciate the fact that... uh, uh, to continue to grow the game, uh, it, it's got to be more of an open system. Um, I, I think we're seeing uh, the commitment from some of the clubs in lower leagues uh, to develop players. Um, and, and so uh, rewards, punishments, opportunities, uh, I say many times that uh, in order to grow the game, you've got to make everybody feel that they're part of it. You can't have a game where so many people feel like they're not included. Uh, that doesn't work. Um, and again, um, th- that's just an important overall concept that I think um, is what the game is is all about around the world. So, yes, I, I absolutely believe in that. Uh, how will that work in the future? Uh, I'm not involved in any of those discussions, you know. Uh, uh, I... I I try to be very honest with my feelings about what's good for the game and how to move things forward. And then along with that, I, I try to to put my biggest amount of focus and energy on, on working with the players that are in front of me every day and the teams that I get the opportunity to coach. Uh, so, so look, I, I express myself, but how possible is it? Um, Probably in the short run, not very possible, but little by little um, different leadership, stronger voices. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there will be some changes, even if they come gradually.
0: Do you think there's any potential for a sooner change with MLS rules on where you can sign young players from?
2: Uh, I hope so. But, but again, I don't know the ins and outs of that discussion. Um, you know, uh, it, it doesn't take a, a genius to realize that, Um in all professional sports, uh, oftentimes behind closed doors, discussions go in the direction of what's good, what's good for me, um, what's good for our club. And, and so there's gotta be enough people that are part of those discussions that can really powerfully push for what it'll mean in a bigger way when things get opened up. And, uh, you know, up until now, um, uh, maintaining some level of control obviously has won, has always won the day. Um I, I I just think that uh if there are teams with different identities, different playing styles, uh, the ability then to to bring players to your club that fit what you're looking for, fit your model, um, to make it more competitive. Uh yes, I I've also said that um if there's a club that doesn't want to have a, an academy, then they shouldn't be forced to have an academy. You know, there, there are successful clubs in Europe that even if they have academies, the academies don't have anything to do with the first team success or, or little to do. So, you know, I, I, I think there's different ways to go about this, but the more people that are involved and are committed and then are, are in a competitive situation with better scouting, with better... Um, coaches in the academy. I think ultimately that's good for the game.
0: Are there any other things, big things that you think MLS should consider changing that would be significant?
2: Well, if I speak about um, the, the idea that uh, we need to make sure that everybody feels that they're part of the game, then look, the, the, the more that we can do, whether we're talking U.S. soccer, or whether we're talking MLS, or we're talking just how the game is run in our country, we, we've got to make sure that, that playing opportunities, all neighborhoods, all kids, quality coaching, good scouting, opportunity, opportunity, opportunity is there. And that's opportunity for players. That's opportunity for coaches. Um, you know, I still have too many people that uh, tell me it's hard to get into coaching courses or that coaching courses are too expensive. And, you know, the, the cost of a pro license in certain countries in Europe versus the cost in our country. Uh, look, we, 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 we should be trying to not only create as many good players, but as many good coaches. Uh, y- you know, I, I have always tried that if there are coaches in the area where, that I'm wor- where I am working, whether that's been in the U.S. or outside, if they're into it, if they're serious, if they want to come watch training, if they want to have a football discussion, I've always tried to make sure that, look, there's an open door here. Um, and and I have always a lot of time for, for young coaches that are into it and are motivated and, and you know, w- want to see what's going on. So I, I'm just – I don't know how you make all that happen, but I, I I do think it starts at the top. And I do think it starts – with some, uh, it's, a, it's a tone that comes from the top, let's face it. Uh, uh, U.S. soccer hasn't always managed that. Um, that doesn't mean there haven't been good people, you know, along the way in different spots. I mean, uh, you know, one of the best guys that was ever involved in, in soccer in the U.S. Is, is, was Mooch Bayernk, Right. And, you know, um, because of Jess Mooch being a real guy, obviously, he's from Trenton. Um, every place he, he, he went, just the work he did. Um, a friend of mine that, that I coach with is Charlie Inverso. Charlie's the coach at Ryder University. And years ago, Charlie started a program in Trenton for the kids in Trenton. It's called Mooch Soccer. Um, and so that didn't come from the top of U.S. soccer. That's for sure. But it came from U.S. soccer because Mooch was a real guy who was a big part of some good things at U.S. soccer. So indirectly, Mooch's impact and and what that meant to anybody who was ever around them and, and how well Charlie knew that and appreciated that, that directly led to a program that, man, we should have hundreds of programs like that. Right. So for me, Yeah, it's got to be a tone that starts at the top. And then you just need as many people who find ways to give back to the game. That's still, you know, giving back to the game is still really important.
0: The U.S. Men's National Team has some big World Cup qualifiers starting this week. As a former U.S. Men's National Team coach, what's it like for you to watch these games?
2: Uh, I watch as someone who, who wants to see our team play well. Um, I watch as a, a guy who loves football, loves to see good football. Uh, I understand the, what the qualifying is like, the pressures along the way. Um, you know, in the moment, uh, look, I think the team has made progress um, along the way. Just the mentality of the group, the, we know that there are some young, talented players uh, seeing them grow, take on bigger roles, get a little bit of an idea of, of what it's like to come in for qualifiers where sometimes uh, you, you got to switch gears quickly that, you know, just because now you, you, you played the week before in Barcelona in a big game, it might, it it's still going to be a, a different kind of challenge to come in and sometimes play in, in a world cup qualifier where maybe the conditions aren't great. Now, If you play at Barcelona, from a technical standpoint, you can certainly do it. But when you switch gears, do you know what's coming? You know, have you said, you know what? I love playing in Camp Nou, but man, this next game is going to be going to be a challenge in a completely different way. And so I I think I've seen from from Greg and his staff and, and so many players, I think I've seen progress in that regard. So I hope that can continue. The team can continue progressing. I think we've seen uh, uh, adjustments to the way the team plays. You know, early on, I thought they were a little bit mechanical uh, in different ways, and now I think it's become more fluid and more dynamic. Um, I, th- I think that takes advantage of some of the qualities of some of our players. Uh, and look, I, I'm always excited when I see um, players, whether they're playing in Europe or whether they're playing in MLS, leave their their clubs come in, immediately realize that they're part of something that's bigger than they are, no matter what club they play on. That's something that Yuri Jurkayev did speak of, that no matter where he was when they came into the national team in France, they all knew it was bigger than them, right? And so when I see good examples of that, and I see a team that goes on the field with the right mentality, then yeah I'm excited and i'm proud of, of 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 that when it happens so I'm looking for more of it.
0: would you ever be interested not next week not next year, but someday coaching the u s men's national team again?
2: No, I think there's going to be uh, other options that are better moving forward um, you know i I loved my time there um, i'm proud of uh, you know, i'm proud of the, of what we were all about during those years you know the the Um, the way we improved our ability uh, to grow in the course of a cycle, our ability now to, you know, early on with some friendlies, play against some big teams, find out what that was like, and then be ready later in the cycle. If we, if we had the chance in a competition to play a big team, to be ready for that. Uh, You know, we always, I think with every team, you try to find a balance between uh, getting the right group of players technically, but getting guys that also, you know, every time they step on the field, their way of competing, their way of helping each other. So I think our teams had balance, uh, and 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 so look, I was proud of all that. But I, I don't live in the past. Um, you know, I I uh, enjoyed my time with the national team. I I, I really enjoy the day to day part of club football the most. Um, I I still enjoy just the idea of every day, uh, what is training going to be like. Um, making sure that everybody that comes in is excited for what we're going to do. So, uh, no, I I had my chance and uh, uh, I'm excited now that there'll be other uh, coaches moving forward, that it'll be their time. But, you know, in the moment, I give Greg credit. I've known him a long time. Uh, You know, I had him. In Region 1 ODP when he was a young guy, and and I always appreciated that he was into it, uh, uh, asked questions, wanted to talk about the game. And so uh, it's not a surprise to see that obviously he had a, uh, a good playing career and that he's taken that into the coaching side. And uh, and, and look, any, any of the young coaches that I've had a chance to work with as players or at some point along the way, uh, it's, it's always with great pride that I watch them move on and, and move their careers along.
0: A couple more questions with Bob Bradley. Really enjoying this and appreciate your time. What do you think about FIFA wanting to have World Cups every
2: two years? Uh, I don't like it. Why? Um, because I think club football is important. I think the Euro competition is important. I think you've got to understand how many, in order to continue to have high-level games, uh, you have to understand how many games a player can play in a one-year period, in a two-year period, in a four-year period. Um, and so, look, I, I appreciate every four years. Um, I, I appreciate the the different tournaments that come in between. Uh, African Cup of Nations is going on right now. So, you know, that's not an ideal one on the calendar for some people, but it's still an exciting tournament. And it's exciting for the players, to go and play for their countries. I know how much that means. Um, So no, I don't like uh, a World Cup every two years. Do
0: you ever think we will see a European Super League of the kind that was proposed and quickly died a year ago?
2: Yeah, I hope not. um, Because once again, uh, club football, uh, the competition week in and week out, uh, I still... Feel that's important, and then that obviously sets itself up well. That uh, something like Champions League has a real special place. Uh, so no, I I, I still uh, uh, you know I, I I I love to see what goes on week in and week out with all the leagues, and uh, and and still love then the opportunity when when the best teams do compete in Champions League. Uh, to see what that's all about.
0: Bob Bradley is the head coach and sporting director of Toronto FC. Bob, thanks for coming on the show. Good, Grant. Keep it going, man. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Bob Bradley, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.